And on the back of the bulletin is, uh, uh, are two verses that uh, were selected for fathers. And the first one is from Genesis 18. It says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. That's part of the covenant promise that God made with Abraham thousands of years ago. And then Proverbs 22 in verse 6, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, both of these are from the English Standard Version. Um, so we thank the Lord for the focus on fathers, and I'm going to ask all the men that are fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers perhaps, if you would be so kind as to stand this morning. Come on, men. Stand up. And ladies, if you would be kind enough to give these gentlemen a round of applause, all right? Thank you so much. You may be seated. That's about all the recognition that you deserve on Father's Day. We had a breakfast this morning. I know we're going to have a, a meal later on. Probably most of you uh, will uh, as well. It is good to have Dixon back with us this morning. Thank you. Brother, we've been praying for you. Good to see that the Lord has uh, answered prayer. We've been having some trouble with the Internet, and uh, so I'm going to enter to, or open the service as I normally do, but I'm not sure we can stream this morning. But you're trying? Okay. Are we hot-spotting this morning or something? Okay. All right. So, for those perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we welcome you this morning. Along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> so, as we've looked at First Peter, or started to look at First Peter about 12 Sundays ago or 12 uh, messages ago because we've preached other sermons since then, we commenced to look at uh, hope that is in the gospel, and that's verses 1 through 12. We'll speak to that again some this morning. Uh, and today we start with verse 13, and this will go through verse 3 of chapter 2 on holiness in the gospel. And then as we move out of uh, that passage, we'll look at hurting with the gospel and then humility in the gospel. So this morning I want to begin reading in verse 13, and I want to read down through verse 3. Uh, we will uh, a few words about fathers before we actually jump in the passage this morning. But be reminded now that we're moving away from the doxology that, was, that Peter commenced in verse 3. So he has given us indicatives. He has taught us doctrine. He has taught us the fact that the hope is in the good news of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Now, what do you do with that hope? Well, that's what he's going to start to explain now. Verse 13. And you will notice that it starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, because of what I've written previously, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, and you've obeyed the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because... All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, and the grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, second time, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing. Holiness in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would teach us what we do not know. We, teach, we pray, Father, that you would Make us like Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would draw us, for those that are unsaved sinners, draw them to Calvary today. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, brother. <clears throat> Last Sunday I mentioned to you, as we were preaching to the graduates, uh, that everyone yearns for the love of a father one that reaches out to them to hear them, to heal them, and to be restored. And I quoted from J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God. He was asked the question, what is a Christian? And he defined it. He said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Three times in this chapter, Peter calls God father. So, He's the father of his children, of born-again believers, the children of God. And he is the father within the Trinity. We studied this a couple of years ago at Christmas time about God the Father. So we're going to look this morning briefly at three characteristics of God the Father which earthly fathers, that's you and I, should emulate. The presence of God, the instruction of God, and the love of God. And the first one is the presence of God. The book of Hebrews, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy, there in chapter 13, the writer says that God conveys, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. When the children of Israel were proceeding out of Egypt in the Exodus, God didn't leave them alone. He was present with his people, the Shekinah glory of God. We're studying Exodus on Sunday evening. I encourage you to come and learn about the Shekinah glory of God. When the children of Israel were sojourners in the wilderness, God prepared for them a table in the wilderness, the psalmist said. He provided manna, he provided quail, and he gave them water. Later, the Father's presence through his guiding instruction sustained his people even when God was silent. His presence set them apart from the rest of the world. In Exodus chapter 33, he speaks to that. You are my chosen, you are not of this world. Peter reminds the pilgrims here in chapter 1 that we are kept by the power of God through faith. Look at verse 5. 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the presence of God. The keeping of his children to himself. So men, those of you that are fathers, in the same way, fathers would do well to imitate God's commitment to his presence with his people. There are many good things that vie for our attention, but none of them are more important than spending time with our children, our grandchildren, especially when it comes to instruction. It's great to have a good time with them, but they need to be instructed. Our children do best when dads are visible and active in their life. And regardless of what our stupid culture says today, and it is stupid, research shows that children do best when fathers are in the home. Secondly is instruction. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. Psalm 94. In 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, we've just read, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you, are taste, and indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The milk of the word. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Some of you have had milk for far too long. We are to look forward to the instruction of the Lord and God's instruction from the Word is perhaps one of the most neglected practices imitated in Christian homes. In the Old Testament, God instructed His children in His law. He gave them His law. And he revealed through the law his character. Why can't we live the law? Because we don't have the character of God. Sinners do not have God's character. We may be in God's image, but we don't have his character. And we will not have his character until we're born again. Instruction. When God gave the law, he revealed to the Hebrew children and to you and I our sinful nature. In the New Testament, he sent his son. And Jesus came to save us from our sinful nature and to reconcile us back to God. So in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit to instruct us. And he does so through the word. It's not some ethereal thing. It's not the wind. It's not the stars. It's not the angels. We've preached about that a couple of Sundays ago. It's the Word. The Word of God. And the Word of God makes us holy. That's what we're going to look at here over the next few weeks. God's priority is instructing His children in His ways, not ours. In His ways. So as fathers... Believers need to place a high value on instruction contained from the Word of God. Now, men, instruction is not passive. It's not go ask your mom. You got a sport question, ask me about sports. But you got a God question, go ask your mom. That's negligence. That's not what God intends. You can't outsource this responsibility. It must be done with your understanding of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God to your children. They're going to ask hard questions. Some of them have already started to ask hard questions. Instruction of children can't be outsourced 
And it is a blessing that God has given to fathers to raise the children, our children, in the fear of the Lord. He talks about fear in this, these verses that we've just read. It's vital to paint a picture of who God is, even in the mundane, even in the boring things of life. Church is so boring. That's because, in many cases, you don't know God. If you think God is boring, you do not know him. Presence, instruction, love. The book of Romans, which we studied for a number of years, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And look at verse 3 of chapter 1 here. Blessed as a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's love. God the Father's love is not contingent on our actions, and glory be to God, it is not. It proceeds from the love that is in his heart. God gave to a sinful, rebellious world that is an enemy of his the most precious person he could. He gave himself. And he is committed to his children all the way to the end. John 13, 1, as Jesus began to wash the feet of his disciples, it begins with this phrase. And Jesus, having loved them, loved them to the end. God loves us to the end. He doesn't desert his children. It's un his love is unconditional. It's sacrificial. In a world of overt independence, and self-serving motivation. Christian fathers should follow God's example of sacrificial and unconditional love, however imperfectly we may, we may be. On vacation this couple of weeks ago, we were sharing some, actually the kids were sharing with me some of my poor parenting methods. I'm glad that my poor parenting methods helped them to become perfect parents. And they shared some, too, of poor. And parents, fathers, nary a one of you, and I include myself in this, we're not perfect fathers. I'm not a perfect grandfather. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're not. We've never arrived. We will never arrive. Not in this life. But in spite of that, we should love as God loved his children, as God loved sinners and called them to himself. Our love should not be determined by whether or not our children throw temper tantrums or whether or not they clean their rooms whether or not they wear what we think they ought to wear or look the way they, we think they ought to look. It needs to be based on the unconditional love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, fatherly love is found in the Father's love for us. Because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, families will never be perfect in this world. There are no perfect families. But fathers should try their best to lavish their children with their presence, with their instruction, and with their love. And so we begin with that this morning. Now, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Holiness in the gospel. Now, we're going to, <clears throat> I'm not going to, will not define holiness this morning. We'll do that later on. 
But as, as I mentioned to you, Peter begins this passage. This is a transition. How do you know? Because of the word therefore. In the old King James, it's wherefore. Same thing. So when you come to a break in the Bible and the verses, remember, no chapter or verse divisions in the original manuscripts. So these, this letter was written in its entirety and sent to churches and they would read through it and maybe somebody would say, and what was Peter saying way back? He didn't, they didn't say chapter one, way back in the beginning. Well, can you remind me? And maybe somebody would remember that. Therefore, he starts, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this is about as far as we're going to get this morning. Gird the loins of your mind. Now, this is very similar. In fact, turn with me back to Romans chapter 12. Very, very similar to what we studied in Romans chapter 12. In fact, you would think that maybe Peter read Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. It was written before Peter wrote his epistles. And perhaps he did. <clears throat> Verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore. Remember now, basically 11 chapters of indicatives. 11 chapters of doctrine. Of teaching. Of instruction. Now Paul says, listen, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. God has allowed you mercifully to be instructed. That's why we're here this morning. For you folks of Flat Creek and for those of you that are guests this morning, I would remind you that when you came in the sanctuary this morning, I hope you did not leave your minds in the parking lot. Your minds are vital to understanding God's work in your heart and your soul. We are not a touchy-feely faith. Christianity is not a touchy-feely faith. It is a faith based on intellect, based on biblical understanding. He says by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Paul says holy, Peter says holy. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Peter says a very similar thing. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There it is, the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, renew your mind. There's an English word for that. Think. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In the first 12 verses, back to 1 Peter now. In the first 12 verses of this chapter... Be reminded that in verse 1 he talks about, he is writing to the pilgrims scattered over Asia Minor in a number of different places. We call this the dispersion. Okay, these primarily were Jewish migrants that left uh, Jerusalem and Palestine because of uh, persecution by the Romans and others. They made their way into the Mediterranean world to avoid persecution. Now, the persecution was not a good thing, but the persecution did allow them to be scattered and exposed to the gospel. That is a good thing. Many of these were born-again believers that settled into the regions that Peter mentions in verse 1. In these verses, the first 12 verses, these are indicatives. This is a long doxology, a long Portrait of redemption, and that's always doctrine. Always. They outline for us what the Trinity 
has done for us. In fact, in verse 12, it says the angels desire to look into what the Trinity has done for us. We preached about that a couple of weeks ago. These are the works of the triune God. That's what he has done for his children and what he has done in his children. They always proceed. Understanding the teaching and the instruction of God will always proceed what we are to do. Now, being Americans, we want the do. Oh, that, I don't care about all that. Just give me, what can I do? But God's expectation is what we are, who we are to be. We can't do until we become. Now, we may be busy, but it becomes, as Jesus said, wood, hay, and stubble, as Paul said. And so the imperatives always follow what the believers are called to be because of Jesus. And 1 through 13, if you include verse 13, the indicatives celebrate God's initiative of grace. And grace precedes hope. Next slide. In the verses that follow, in the, in the, in the first uh, 12 verses, first, uh, excuse me, first 13 verses, this is what, God, what Peter has taught us by the Spirit of God. Number one, he says that God has chosen you. If we are born again, we are chosen of God, just like the children of Israel. And he says that. In fact, he says a very similar thing in verse 20 about Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we are to live holy because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That hope proceeds, and we'll see here in, in just a moment, uh, or rather grace proceeds hope. Verse 4, since God is keeping an inheritance for you that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, incorruptible is the word that he uses. Verse 5, since God's power is through faith, so you don't lose your inheritance. Verses 6 and 7, God is refining your faith by fire. He is refining my faith by fire so that it will receive praise, glory, and honor. Verses 8 and 9. So love, faith, and joy in Christ have been gifted to us. We didn't gain them. They're given. Even though we have not physically seen Christ, that's what he says, verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. And, verses 10 through 13, since the prophets and the angels are straining to see all that God's grace is going to do in your life, therefore, hope fully in this grace. That's what verse 13 says. Be thankful for the instruction because you wouldn't be appreciative of the grace. It brings us to a point to where we are ready to understand that it is the grace alone of God that saves. And so we praise him because of those tremendous, tremendous indicatives that are found in the first 12. And if you add verse 13, he talks about fully of fully grace, exposing ourselves fully to the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Next slide. Piper says this, Christianity is not first an ethic, and these were in his notes <clears throat> about this particular chapter. Christianity is not first an ethic. It is not first a faith or feeling or a theology. It is first a sovereign Initiative-taking action of God. 
We see that all the way back in verse 1. We'll see it again in verse 20. Only now do we hear the command. After Peter celebrates the doxology for 12 verses, after the sovereign action of God and election, the resurrection of Jesus and in the causing of the new birth, in the keeping of our inheritance, in the preservation of the faith of the saints and the providential working in affliction to refine us, and in the foreordaining, predicting work of the prophets. Only now do we hear a command. Gird up the loins of your mind. And the first command that is given here is hope in the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we preach expositionally? For that very thing. If we didn't, we would pick and choose our favorite passages and we wouldn't be exposed in many cases to the great truths that are contained here in the Word of God. Next slide. Now Edmund Clowney in his commentary on 1 Peter, and Clowney is with the Lord, been with the Lord now for about 10 years, maybe a little longer. <clears throat> he was a, uh, uh, a fellow, whatever that means, a fellow in residence at, uh, in a church in Charlottesville when he died. He's an Englishman, was an Englishman, and he wrote this. Without the indicative of what God does, this is what God has done for us, for you and I. The imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner. No understanding of the instruction of God, we're just helpless. We're, as Jude said, we're like waves tossed to and fro. Clouds that assemble in the sky and have no rain. We've seen that over the past few weeks. Some rain, some not. A lot of wind yesterday. A lot of wind on Friday afternoon. But at our house, not any rain. We've become the victim of our own illusions. And that's easy when our minds are not girded up. It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. If we don't understand the teaching and instruction of the Lord, we're not going to be able to follow the imperatives. We're not going to be able to rest in the grace of God. We'll become very confused. We'll become very disoriented. We will become fractious about our faith because we haven't grasped the truths that Peter wrote in these first opening verses. A lot of people begin their Christian faith, or I use the word loosely, their Christian walk with enthusiasm. <clears throat> Parable of the sword, Jesus taught this. But they end with lethargy. Uh, it's too much trouble for me to go to the Lord's house. It's too much trouble for me to pray. I don't want to give. I don't want to see so and so. And so they just become lazy. How we begin is important. But perseverance, where we end, is evidence of our faith. It's not how we begin. It's how we end. Now GPSs, we came back from vacation a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> it's interesting that for the last several years we've tended to go to the same place, but we always plug in the GPS. Because maybe, being guys, there's a shorter route. There's a quicker route 
Let's take a left here. Left. Let's take a left here. Take a right here. And so, back when we were thinking people, we used maps. Now we just... I got the address in. What happens if you put the address in wrong? And I have. And probably you have too. If we don't enter the right beginning, now most GPSs, you can, they'll say, okay, can, can I use your present position? And of course you trust the internet. Oh yeah, that's okay. And then you press all of the knobs or all of the keys, whatever, for the ending place. Now, when we came back from where we were staying, there's a great place, and I would highly recommend it to you. Robbie would disagree with me. But if you've never been to a Bucky's, any of you ever heard of a Bucky's? Yeah? It puts sheets to shame. And Robbie loves Bucky's, don't you, honey? <laughs> so we were heading down 95, and the GPS said, take, a left, take this exit, 160, 169, I don't remember. And I saw a sign, Bucky's, five miles. Well, I got to go to Bucky's. We went to the first one when we were in Texas. Google it. Google it. It is the cleanest. Uh, it's not the cheapest, but it's the cleanest uh, convenience store and gas. And these gas, how many, how many pumps up here, you think? Twelve, maybe? Well, the one we went to, which was just north of Florence, had 50 pumps. And I think about every one of them was full. So I went on past where the GPS told me to get off. And we stopped in a bucket only for a short period of time, went to the restroom. I wanted something to eat, but Robbie was uh, uh, telling me that I needed to go, so we went. That's what a good father and good husband does, okay? So I got back in the car, and usually the GPS resets. And you pull out, and I was waiting for it to reset, waiting for it to reset, waiting for it to reset, and I guess it thought, you dummy, you pulled off at the wrong place. So it didn't reset. So I'm thinking, well, we're only, I can get back on 95 and go down, and so we did that, and it took us through hell's half acre, okay? And we do all of that. I say all this as an illustration to remind you that Sometimes we allow other things or people to do the thinking for us. Now we got home, and we were only, what, an hour late or something coming home? Anyway, we got home, no problem. Finally came to a, to a great place where we could see what we knew and understood and went on. That's one of the great things about traveling. One of the great things about being retired, you don't have to worry about time. When we repent of our sins and we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's point A, so to speak, point A. It's where we begin. It's not where we end. It's where we begin. But profession of our faith does not mean we possess Jesus Christ. Millions of people have walked aisles, prayed prayers. They have done everything that a procedure has said, but they have no idea of the teachings and instructions of the Lord because somebody has told them this is all you have to do, and that's, so that's all they have done. It is our obedience as God's children and holiness. Look at verse 14, as obedient children. Now, the word obedient there is the English word obedient. That's what it means, to obey. 
It indicates the imperatives of life. And it indicates that the imperatives of our life are in step with the indicatives in verses 3 through 12. This happens in our life. And so we must be careful of that. Next slide, if you would. The hope that he's defined in verses 3 through 12, the hope of the gospel, is revealed in our lives as holiness. And again, I'm not going to define that this morning. We'll come back to that uh, perhaps next Sunday. So hope makes us ready to become holy. Now let's define hope. I've defined it a number of times, but this one was uh, one that I ran across this week. What's biblical hope? Well, this is what it is. Biblical hope is a confidence that integrating God's redemptive acts in the past, what God did at Calvary, with trusting human responses in the presence, our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness both in the present and in the future. God is above all holy, and because he is holy, he is good. Unholy people are not good. But God is. Now, biblical hope, Peter is writing, Paul wrote, biblical hope is quite a bit different from the Greek's understanding, and this is Greco-Roman world, the Greek understanding of hope. Their view, much like our view. Human beings express hope by their nature. So if we have a good experience, or we're going someplace, or maybe we have... uh, Uh, an appointment with a doctor. If we have a good result of that, then our hope is increased. But if we don't, God doesn't love me. Why did God put me in this position? Why is this happening to me? Because we are emotive people. And so the Greeks looked at the good and bad experiences and they defined those as either good hope or bad hope. And so the future became a projection of your own subjective possibilities. But biblical hope (coughs) avoids the subjectivity. And it's founded on God and his redemptive acts, verses 1 through 12. Why can we hope in the gospel? Because of verses 1 through 12. This is fact. The mind reads this. It's not fallacy, it's fact. In our reading, God gave us intelligence. In our reading... In the preaching, in the teaching, the Spirit of God speaks to our minds, which then motivate the heart, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A couple of more things and we'll close this morning. Next slide. Now, misplaced hope is useless. We talked about Good hope, bad hope, that type of thing. But biblical hope is potent. Peter has laid for us a foundation for hope in the gospel in the first 12 verses, and in verses 13 through 21, he applies that biblical hope. And the application is holiness. If we have hope in the gospel, the result is holiness in the gospel. 
In verse 13, he essentially asks the question, what happens when we have hope and grace that is brought to us by Christ? Verse 14, it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust. We do not conform to evil desires. Why? That's unholy. Verses 15 through 16, we conform to God's holiness. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because, and he quotes from the book of Leviticus, be ye holy for I am holy. In verse 17, he says our conduct Conduct yourselves throughout the times of your stay here in fear. And we're to do that because our conduct should conform to the reality of God's judgment. And God will judge. In fact, he's the only one that can completely and without any prejudice judge us. Verses 18 and 19, we have been redeemed from corruptible things. And our aimless conduct, our unholy conduct, with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. And in verses 20 and 21, we believe in God because of the gospel, which results in the incorruptible work of faith and hope. The incorruptible word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's how we're to think. And we can't think that way until we're in the book. We can think about a lot of things. We can take our education. We can take our craft or whatever. We can make a living, make a very good living in some cases. But we can't think biblically until we're in the Word. Just can't be done. Well, I know what's right and wrong. Well, most people do because they have a God consciousness within their soul, but that doesn't mean that they do what is right and wrong. They're more easily persuaded to do what is wrong than what is right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked. Genesis 19. And the answer to question is, of course, he will. Next week we'll pick up, we'll go more deeply into these verses. Peter begins to lay out the reasons why we should be holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are compelled because of what we have been taught to live holy lives. Now, Father, that's not only a resistance to certain things that we know to be evil or we know to be wrong, but that's also positive in the nature that we choose what is good, what is kind, what is right, in fact, Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4 that we are to think on things that are pure, things that are holy. And I must confess that I don't do that. Not often. Not often enough. And so I pray for your children this morning. I pray that we would understand that, yes, holiness is a high, it's a stiff call. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's the expectation. And for those of us that have been born again, we have the power of the Spirit of God through the Word to grow in holiness. I do pray for any this morning that do not know your Savior. My prayer is that they would understand their life is not holy. Yeah, they may do good things sometimes. They may be kind sometimes. But it's not holy. The holiness has been imputed to believers by Jesus Christ. It's been placed on our account because of his work. And if they don't know your Savior, they do not have that holiness. 
So my prayer is that you would call them to the foot of the cross this morning. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. We will be reminded again of the hope that is in the gospel. The death of Jesus, his shed blood. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We will be reminded of his burial. And as Second Peter chapter 2 tells us, his ascent, his descent rather, into the bowels of the earth. But then we praise you, Father, for that glorious resurrection that provides for believers the hope of being, of having eternal life. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of an invitation hymn. And the invitation is very, very simple this morning. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, in fact, if you're sitting there and you have question about whether or not Jesus is your Savior, don't leave here today until you resolve that question. We can't save you. But with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can leave here this morning with that assurance. And you can begin a holy walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will accept you just as you are, but he's not going to leave you just like you are. He begins a change. And so we're going to sing, give you an opportunity, make your way out of the pew. Again, we'll take you to a private prayer room. If you're here today as a child of God, and the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, you, need, you know the Lord by, uh, that uh, the Lord is your Savior, and perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that decision this morning, that stand today. Or unite by some other means this morning. As a child of God, all of these wonderful truths that we've learned in these first 12 verses now begin to impact us in real time. And so that's what we're going to look at. Just as they did in Romans chapter 12, they do here the latter part, 1 Peter chapter 1. What number, Brother Mike? 147. The Lord's spoken to you. Won't you stand and won't you come?